Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company based in upstate New York that is committed to making the best artist materials for artists to make work with. I've been using Golden Paints and Mediums for 20 years, and I swear by it. You can get it in just about every art store and online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The New York Studio School offers a range of programs, including the MFA, their certificate program, the marathon program, evening and weekend classes, and a distinguished lecture series that's free and open to the public. The school's internationally recognized marathons are two-week intensive courses designed to build momentum and expand one's creative boundaries. The school welcomes participants for the fall 2019 marathons in drawing and sculpture, which begins September 3rd. Apply online today at nyss.org. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Baron Arts. Baron Arts is a Brooklyn-based designer and builder of the best stretcher frames, art panels, and floater frames in New York and the U.S. They have many styles and options, from standard strainers to mechanical expansion stretchers to fully custom shapes determined by each client. They also stretch the finest canvases and linens to your exact specifications and can even crate and ship your order or your finished paintings anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. Baron Arts has almost 30 years' experience building custom structures for artists like Elizabeth Murray, Sean Scully, Kehinde Wiley, Joan Snyder, Catherine Bernhardt, and thousands of others. From custom to standard, big projects and small, they remain the most reasonably priced custom shop around, and they take great pride in offering the finest work at affordable prices for the entire artist community. Your artwork should be on the finest structures available, built by Baron Arts. Find out more at baronarts.com. Robert Irving is an artist currently living and working in St. Louis, Missouri, who was born in San Diego, California. He received his MFA from the Sam Fox School of Design and Visual Art at Washington University of St. Louis, and he got his BFA from the Kansas City Art Institute in Art History and Ceramics. In 2017, Calicoon Fine Arts mounted his first solo exhibition in New York titled Streets, Chains, Cocktails. September 8th, Irving opened Black Ice at Calicoon Fine Arts, which will be his second solo exhibition with the gallery. His work has been exhibited at the Nerman Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas, the Craft Contemporary in Los Angeles, and the RISD Museum in Rhode Island, amongst others. He was selected to participate in the 2019 Great Rivers Biennial hosted by Contemporary Art Museum of St. Louis, where he will have a solo exhibition in May 2020. His work is in the collections of J.P. Morgan Chase Art Collection in New York, the Nerman Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas, the Carnegie Museum of Art in my hometown of Pittsburgh, and the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. In 2018, his first institutional solo exhibition, Street Matter, Decay and Forever, Golden Age, took place at Wesleyan University Center of the Arts in Connecticut and was accompanied by a full-color catalog with essays and an interview. His work will be featured in Making, Knowing, Craft and Art, 1950 to 2019, upcoming at the Whitney Museum in New York City, 
from November 20th, 2019 to January 2021. I met up with Khalil at the site of his solo show, which just opened at Calicoon Fine Arts, and we talked about jazz music, we talked about his development in the world of ceramics and finding his way through pottery, the meaning behind his work, residencies, family, materiality, and much more. Here's me and Khalil talking in the gallery. You might only be the second person to ever have a pen and a notepad for this. Oh, really? That's pretty professional. <laughs> who, who's the other person? I can't. I can't remember who it was, but someone had. Someone said, "Oh, I got." Don't mind this. I got some notes. <laughs> and, well, and, but they never looked at it or used it. But it made me feel like, oh, should, maybe I should have some notes. I'll be honest with you. There aren't any notes. I'm so, okay. Just yet. That's cool. You're just going to s- sketch on it? Yeah. I think when I talk or think about things, it's just nice to... If something happens, it's like put something down right or like i'll be thinking about something in response to something that somebody's saying or i'll be walking around or i'll be in a meeting and i just oh shoot i gotta write but you're not a doodler you know how like mm. some people like to doodle while they're talking no i tend to like take notes of what's being said or what yeah. we're talking about or i'll be off in another place and yeah, but if you're taking notes, that's you. It seems more responsible than if you're just doodling. <laughs> and people are like, "You're not paying attention to anything, are you?" And a lot of people that I know who do doodle, they're not paying attention. Right, they're lost in another world. <laughs> and people say multitasking really works, and I don't. I don't think that that's real. I think multitasking is doing quite a few things at the same time and trying to get them done as soon as possible, as soon as you can right in a kind of order if that if at possible well they've done studies like i've i've listened to an interview with like uh, someone who studies sort of like neurology and they're saying that we're not made to multitask no like we're not effective at it at mm-hmm. all we're just and the stress that it puts on your system is crazy yep. so it's we like to think, oh, yeah, man, we're doing great. We're multitasking. It's like, no, we're just doing a lot of stuff kind of not so great. At the same time. Yeah, exactly. But we're important. Yep. <laughs> yep. So are you, are you a phone? I mean, is it a big part of your day to day or do you try to keep it away? No, phone phone's definitely a big part of my day. It's hard not to, right? Well, I'm always like thinking about a lot of different things like we all are, but I just want to look at photos from things that I've done (laughs) or places I've been or work that I've made or things other people have sent me or screenshots that I've had. And I just visual people, right? Yep. And I'm always looking through my screenshots and I'm always adding to it too. Right. So, but when you, well, maybe less so, I guess maybe when you're in school or younger, were you a library person though? Did you like books? I, I, I liked books. I like books. I liked books. Mostly lately, I've just been reading a lot of poetry mm-hmm. and like looking up and looking at backs of books of poetry. Maybe not being able to read the whole book, but I at least read the synopsis or what the poet's sharing. When right. I was younger, I think I had like kind of a tumultuous upbringing mm-hmm. and 
so reading sometimes was like it was so hard it was too hard to focus oh okay because other things were happening so it wasn't it wasn't like because a lot of when kids are young a lot of times readings the escape right like turn it off oh i just ran away yeah i just physically go do something else right separation Um, of geography yeah (laughs) (laughs) i had that some too you know with and growing up when there was days where i just like i know like i gotta get out of this house yep like this isn't a good environment right now yeah and i thankfully i my grandmother my father's mother was very supportive of doing things and that's kind of how i got into thinking about making yeah being creative and stuff. Yeah. yeah it's like at first i think some of the first things that i did was go to the ymca yeah and there was one that was just built by the school that i attended for third and fourth i think third fourth and fifth grade where exactly was this? In St. Louis, Missouri. Like in the city, city, city yep. proper? Yep. I know a lot of people say they're from St. Louis, but they're from, actually from the county. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I haven't, I haven't been to St. Louis in a while, but I'm trying to imagine the downtown area. It's still the same. Yeah. It's not. Businesses moved. The Union Station is renovated as a hotel, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, they're about to build a soccer stadium. Right next to it, which is weird because there's the highway right next to Union Station. So where are they going to put the soccer stadium? I don't know. What's the team? I should know this. Oh, Sporting Kansas City, right? Well, that's Kansas City. St. Louis, yeah. And St. Louis is a different team. It's weird. They they actually haven't released the name of the the team. It's weird. They're an expansion. (laughs) St. Louis Thunder or something like that. Yeah, it's so weird. But I went to the Y. I then, when I was in middle school, I started playing baritone saxophone. Yeah. Well, I started playing tenor saxophone, and then I picked tenor? up. Yeah. What age? Middle school, I'd say like 12, 13. Yeah. And then I played through, went to high school, and my band director, she told me, you should play baritone saxophone. And she, Looking back, I think she asked me to play baritone saxophone because there was no one playing baritone saxophone. Right. And that's she wanted how, me to play it. That's how some of those instruments get doled <laughs> out. It's like, does anyone come in with, like, you know, euphonium? Like, you know what? I, was, I really want to yeah. play the euphonium. Yeah, you know, French horn. <laughs> that's, your, that's your guy. Right. <laughs> and that was tremendous because I got to meet a lot of people. I got to go to a historical jazz place in St. Louis called Jazz at the Bistro and I got to meet and listen to some of my favorite jazz musicians play. Uh-oh, we can go in the wormhole. Yeah, well, Hammett I, Blewett just passed away and he yeah. was one of my teachers. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. He let me play one of his horns and it was a Jerry Mulligan baritone. Whoa. Yeah, Wait, when like I was in high it school. It was owned by Jerry Mulligan? It was one of Jerry Mulligan's horns. That's crazy. It was amazing. That must have been some history in Hell yeah. He said, you know, you really have to blow in this horn. You really have to blow. (laughs) (laughs) You want to get some sound, you got to blow. Right. Control your air. I played alto when I was in school. Nice. And then I didn't get tenor until much later. They didn't let you. It was too big or something. I don't know. Or they probably didn't have them. That's That's cool. You got to have the baritone. It was, well, my high school, they had a marching or like a performing band situation. And then at some point in time, they canceled that and they moved it to be more like a symphonic band. Mm -hmm. 
And so we didn't have strings or anything, but it was just an all out, um, like basically we were all playing horns, brass and woodwinds, right? brass and woodwinds and some percussionists yeah. were back there, which was but like the amazing. timpani or something. Yes. We had timpanis and those giant symbol, those, that guy. And then the really large, uh, chimes. Oh yeah. That was, I think playing in the band and having all that sound is one of the biggest things that I miss when making art. Yeah. So I, I, when I'm working, I tend to like watch a lot of Netflix or TV or listen to music for a while. And then I have to like hear a lot of voices at the same time. Do you, will you put on stuff about like music? Sometimes, not really. Uh, actually, Song Exploder. That's my friend Rishi. Really? Yeah. I love that podcast. It's so good, isn't it? It is amazing. Yeah. I listened to Bonover the other day, the, one of the most recent yeah. episodes, and to hear how he made that song was it was crazy those things are gifts like a deeper look at at songs like that yeah yeah so Rishi was we went to school together cool and he played in a band and I played in a band and we often played gigs together (laughs) that's awesome small world right (laughs) (laughs) and then you know after we graduated he went out to the west coast and he ended up doing song exploder and he does the west wing podcast wow He's busy with that stuff. But yeah, that's a great podcast. Did you watch that documentary on Lee Morgan? On I think it was on Netflix. Okay, I'm going to have to write that down. No, I didn't. It was. It's moving. Because, you know, he died so young. I think he was like 22 when he was shot. Crazy stuff. So was Darn That Dream one of the first songs you learned on the baritone? <laughs> my, my, my favorite song, one of the first songs I like really worked on was uh, Moments Notice. Nice. It's yeah, a good one. That's, and Hammett Blewett was my teacher and one of my favorite saxophone players, but my like most fame, like favorite, favorite, favorite saxophone players, Pepper Adams. Yeah. Pepper Adams is my West, favorite. He's a West Coast, West Coast guy, wasn't he? No. But he pl- or he played with a he, lot of West Coast He guys. played. For some reason, I associated him with like Stan Kenton and Art, like Art Pepper and Jerry Mulligan, you know, a lot of... Yeah, Pepper was like, it's like, I don't know, it's kind of like he got overshadowed yeah, somehow. And I don't know if it was because Jerry Mulligan just had like such a sweet tone. Right. And he could really handle his horn yeah. in that way. I have a good friend, Ariana Nemeti, who plays that baritone in Kansas City. And we met when we were in high school. Mm-hmm. And... I told her years ago, I said, that's a funny joke that Jerry Mulligan sounded like he was playing a tenor. <laughs> he handled it so sweetly and yeah. generously, it sounded like a tenor. Right. He never, like, really went as deep or as low as he could have. Yeah. In the, like, kind of veracity of what a baritone is able or capable of getting you. It was kind of smoothed out. Yeah. You know, that um, Rebirth of the Cool, I think... I mean, that's hit, a beautiful album. It really is. And it hit a lot of people. I think some people hit that moment and just stayed with that. Yep. And so when Pepper Adams playing, very melodic, yeah. very complicated rhythms, very fast mm-hmm. and layered and so much pressure in his playing yeah. that I just like, I mean, Jerry Mulligan will make you cry in one direction, but Pepper Adams will make you weep in another. 
That's the gift of that music, though. It's, it can go in so many different ways. Yeah. But yeah, it's crazy how there's such amazing people who are overlooked like that, you know. Like my, but he was loved in Asia, in Japan, and yeah. in Asia, they love Pepper Adams, right? Yes, yeah, but I think it was because it, it was eighties, nineties, like yeah, like it was very fast, very moving, building quick, and Pepper, yeah, I just I don't know, so I I try to like, I try to think about his work, you know, every week or yeah. so, so it never goes away. Yeah, that's like for me, I, I mean, I play guitar and Grant Green is my all time favorite like, guitar player. And I feel like he was, I mean, he had a big career, you know, he was on Blue Note and released a lot of records. But, you know, compared to like Kenny Burrell or Wes Montgomery, people like that, he just wasn't quite like if you say Grant Green to a lot of people, they don't know who he is, you know, but he's so good. But you say Blue Note and they're like, oh, yeah, oh, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the records he was on, you know, they know those people, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, that's finding those like, I feel like in art, I do that a lot too. We go back in time and try to find like, let's say it's pop and you know, your you know, your Warhols or your Lichtensteins and then there's the other people. Like I remember when I was in undergraduate school, seeing on a cover of art in America, John Wesley painting. And I was like, what the hell is yeah. this? Yeah. Or this going to Chinati and saying, yeah, why is he in this Yeah, group? right. John Judd and then that guy. But you're but like Ronnie Horn and then <laughs> wait. These naked cartoon photos, I don't, or these naked cartoon paintings, I'm, where are they going? I was going to say, like, you'll see a, a Donald Judd and then a, an old guy in his underwear chasing a duck. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, how did, one of these don't look like the yeah, other. Yeah, like, where'd this come from? <laughs> but it's really interesting to find those people who are like on the second or third tier, yeah. you know, of like people's consciousness of like a movement or something. And to see that, like, a lot of the people from the past were close. Yeah. Even though they were making such different work. Right. Yeah. Which it's, it's really exciting and kind of scary, like approaching my second exhibition mm-hmm. here at Calicoon Fine Arts. And it's such an honor to work with Fodi Giovanna's. Um, but yeah, it's like, I feel like I've have so much to do. And I have yet so little time to do it. Right. But I've been able to accomplish so much. And now I'm like able to, I'm entering into a world that I didn't really know so much about before physically, like difference between reading about New York and books and things and actually like being able to open exhibitions, being able to be present, being able to travel and come back and forth. It's just like such a treat. And being conscious of that while you're doing it, because mm-hmm. sometimes it comes at you so fast and, you know, you get so lost in the studio or like your your vision that it's hard to see the, you know, the full scope of what's happening. Yeah. Until and you look back. <laughs> we installed the show quite early and had ev- mostly everything put together. And I'm excited about this show and I'm excited to be here on this visit and this trip. But it's kind of it's kind of weird because I'm also like now that the date is approaching that we'll open and share the work with the public. I'm like getting really anxious and sweaty and nervous and like really excited. But before I was like, oh, I got to I got to focus on the next thing. Sorry, my email list is just so long. I got (laughs) to check the email. I can't think about this show right now. Right. But now that it's coming up, I'm just like, 
holy shit, like people are about to walk in that door yeah. and either accept it or reject it. I was, you know, it's funny. I was talking to someone last night about that, of, of like that feeling of expectation and, and kind of, no, it's not anxiety, but you know, you get anxious about, you know, like, oh, how will this re- be received? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that kind of communication. And I think, like for me, my first few shows, I definitely, it was like high key, you know what I mean? Like I was super like sensitive to that stuff. And I think over, over time, like it, I don't know, it changes a little bit, but I don't know. What are your expectations? Like, what do you, and does it ever really get fulfilled? Do you know what I mean? Because there's so many different voices that some people are like, oh, I really love this. And other people ask you pointed questions about what does this mean? You know, do you ever get at the end of a show, like the final verdict of like, okay, well, you know what I mean? It's always kind of nebulous. Yeah, I think my first show, I was so, I think every day I was screaming inside Yeah, of like pure joy and happiness that I didn't care what anybody said. Like I was so happy with every aspect of how everything turned out. Mm-hmm. And, and being, that you get to share it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I got to meet so, I've met so many people. Yeah. And like having like building a relationship with Fody has like been very helpful because yeah. it's like you know he's he's you know this is this is the gateway in into the into the environment like this is the like Fody and I working together as a way to walk into the room with everybody else right and. I don't know. I, I was very pleased with my work and I was just happy that I was able to have a show and we could make some sales and everything. And then it was just like, oh, Art in America came in. Mm-hmm. Oh, our forum critic pick. Oh, New York Times uh, look up on the Sunday paper. Oh, Gornica Magazine, a thousand word essay. The John went to St. Louis and saw went to the St. Louis Art Museum and then came back and caught the end of my show and like I just happened to be from St. Louis and had made the work in St. Louis and right. he had just visited St. Louis and not knew who I was. And so like all of that happened and it was just like, "Oh, icing on the cake. This can happen." Yeah. Oh shit. Like this is real. But you were feeling good about it even before. That. Right. I mean, this just like it. I mean, I didn't have any expectations. I didn't really. I don't know if I really even had any desires. I just I mean, I was just I was having to be selling work and showing a show and making new things like I'm going to continue working on wallpapers. Yeah. And they're kind of a little bit all over the place or a little disjointed in the presentation. But that first wallpaper that I made for the show, which was the name of the name of the exhibition street chains cocktails. It's a chain link pattern that's flattened uh, with a white background and mm-hmm. you, you chain link fence. You can see through it, but this image of chain link, you couldn't see anything on the other side, but the white wall of the gallery. Yeah. just opaque. And that the, the framework of that work, the conceptualization of that work really like, I still think about and work through like so many things that I was able to do in that show. I've like, I'm still resonating with. And yeah. Well, I think secretly 
Not to speak on behalf of an entire population of artists. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think most artists just want to be able to, for their show, when they, you know, are showing their work, to do well enough just so they can make more work. In a way, yeah. You know? Like, I could just want to keep going. Yeah. And, and then you self-invest. Some of that could be paying rent for the studio. Some of that could be, like, validation of, like, oh, this, you're, what you're doing is interesting and you should keep doing it. You know, like, we are humans. We like to hear that, you know. Good job. Like, oh, this is interesting to me. I'd like to see more of it, yeah. you know. And secretly, Congratulations. That's kind of what you want to do. You We'd know? like to offer you a book. <laughs> <laughs> right. Can you sign on the dotted line for the book deal? <laughs> And I actually got to get a book deal, which was great. That is great. From this show, a woman named Rosemary Lennox, who works at Wesleyan University, mm-hmm. she invited me to do a solo exhibition at, or propose a solo exhibition at the university. And that's this, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's the catalog that we. I just went to New Haven yesterday to pick it up. Nice. Well, I went to New Haven to drop off a friend of mine's sculptures. And then I went to Wesleyan. And I can't believe that it's been a year since starting install there. Time flies. It flies. It's like, I it, I feel like it's a snowball on a hill. Mm-hmm. As time goes on, it goes faster and faster. It grows. It just keeps it gains rolling momentum. and rolling, rolling and rolling. Yeah. So you got to do it now, right? Yep. <laughs> Everything that you can, you got to seize every opportunity. So when you were, you're growing up and uh, like you were saying, your grandmother, right, was sort of like helped put you on the path of like making and, you know creating that environment for you how did it manifest itself into you know moving through school and to where you are today was it was it always a certain way of making i mean were you a drawer did you like to build things you know because your work is there's a it's materiality there's a lot of materiality it's conceptual but it's there's materiality and it works itself out in different ways so how did you get to the sort of physical side of the work that you're doing well, I was born in San Diego, California. My father was in the Navy, and I, my mother, I think, just graduated high school. And then, like, between then and I moved to St. Louis with my father, like, more, like, regularly living with him in St. Louis and my, my dad's mom when I was seven or eight. And so... From then, like in school, it was always a group thing. It was always me and others. It wasn't ever just me by myself. Yeah. And I think I've always been interested in working and doing things. Like maybe it's just organizing groups and doing the car wash in high school or Mm -hmm. being in the band or going to a special one day choir rehearsal and then performance at night which is the E. Desmond Lee music program in St. Louis where mm-hmm. they bring all the city and county schools, choir students or like people who just wanted to sing together in one place, rehearse some music and then you get on the stage 200, 300 people at a time Performed. a choir that big high Powerful. school students it was insane. I would just, sometimes I'd just stand there and like not sing the song. I was going to say this, I guess safety in numbers there. <laughs> <laughs> the sound was just so big and yeah. so like powerful. So I just, I did a lot of stuff. I went to the YMCA. I was in the YMCA Leaders Club. I volunteered at the farmer's market down the street from my grandmother's house in Tower Grove Park. 
I played in the band. So I did all these things. So I was always moving. I was always doing. Mm-hmm. I played with Legos a lot growing up. I love video games. I love video games more than, than I do now. My grandmother was a really big influencer on the video games. Oh, really? She would buy me the video games. What, what, was your, what was your game? I mean, everything. I had a Game Boy Color when yeah. it came out with the Pokemon Yellow. Okay. I think that was like 1999. Yeah. Um, I had a PS2. Mm-hmm. I, my, my favorite, uh, not role-playing game, but like first-person game is God of War. Okay, see, that's where I, I kind of, after Nintendo, I kind of dropped off a little bit. I can, I can understand. <laughs> I mean, I, I woke up watching Pokemon on uh, CW on Saturdays. I, I mean, I watched, I'd wake up at five, six, seven o'clock and I'd watch chat, the PBS and then I'd go to CW. Yeah. And then I'd watch wrestling. These are <laughs> the days when you, when you had to like watch something that came on at a certain time. Yeah. Or you had to fight somebody. Like I'd have right. to like, I'd have to convince my grandmother to let me, please let me just watch the next section of the show, please. <laughs> right. I'll be, I, you know, and. I also live like St. Louis has a lot of parks, which is nice. And one of the apartments that I lived in with my grandmother, there was a park right up the street called Reservoir Park. Mm -hmm. And I would ride my bike there all the time. I spend a lot of time alone and I spend a lot of time with other people. And I, I felt like I was fairly, I was pretty content. Wait, you were an only child? No, I have six siblings, but one, I'm the only child from my parents. Okay. From my parents, so, so you didn't. There wasn't like a lot of people around all the time. Not all the time, yeah. Okay, but I have I have a little brother named Kashmir who's twenty five, mm-hmm. little sister named Precious who's twenty three, a little sister Dahlia that's maybe I think twenty one, and then I have a little a much younger sister Naomi, and she's fifteen, mm-hmm. sixteen years old, and then I have a baby brother and sister that are twins Alexander and Luna so you're like and they're 11 you're an older brother I'm an older <laughs> brother yeah yeah Alexander and Luna were born when I was 16 and my father always said like they're gonna be Gemini's because they're twins and I was like mm, now their birthday's gonna be in April <laughs> coincidentally they were born the day after my birthday oh really yeah so they're I'm April 25th and they're April 26th nice yeah, it would have been real sweet to have the have the same birthday as them. Yeah, that's close enough. They're really beautiful. I think people. it counts. Forty eight hours. Yeah, you know, like we're t- when they're twenty, the, you know, they if I have a home in New York, they come visit me in New York and right, right, go have a big party for them. <laughs> but they're so beautiful, and I really love that I get to share time with them. I remember when they were babies and I had to hold both of them at the same time. Yeah. What is, I guess it's nice being, it's it's such a different dynamic. I would imagine from being like maybe five when you have like twin. Yes. Twin kids. Cause you grow up together. Yeah. But then there's the whole like, not rivalry, but you know, Mm -hmm. you're young. So you're just, if you're older, you can be like, Oh, it's the, the kids (laughs) and you can hold them and help take care of them. But when you're like five and they come around, you're probably like, oh, they're, they're taking some of that spotlight. Well, <laughs> and that and I think what alleviates that is just not um, 
being born to the same parentage. Right. But Bonnie, their mother, is very loving and caring, and I really appreciate that they have her in their lives. I wish I was able to be around more, but my work and my time, I really have to focus. My work is so heavy. Yeah. It's so heavy in the realm of what I want to talk about, and it's also heavy in the realm of its material. Right. Well, it's a big shift because you were saying that you spent a lot of time in groups, but then you were saying you spent time alone because, you know, working on art is usually you in a box. Solo. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You and your thoughts. Well, when I was younger, my father took me to a Saturday afternoon open studio program called, it was at a place called the Potter's Workshop, and that was, um, the Potter's Workshop was run by a place called the South City open studio and gallery mm-hmm. Skoseg, I think and it was run by a woman named Jenna Bauer and that's when I first learned about pottery and I've been making pottery Did since you, I was 12 you loved it? I mean I walked in the room I saw a pottery wheel they said oh you need to work with this stuff with your hands and I was like work with my hands I don't know about that I, I want to do this and I saw somebody like swirling you know that oh, that yeah. video of Donald Trump on the wheel and it like makes a mess. <laughs> it's like really stupid. Yeah. I think it's some commercial for like mm-hmm. Discover or something. And but I saw somebody throwing on the wheel and I was like, I want to do that. And they said, You have to come back next week if you'd like to do that. Oh, for wheel throwing. Yeah, for wheel throwing, you gotta be a returned member. Right. And I was like You gotta earn the wheel. You gotta earn <laughs> your keep. So I came back every weekend from then on. I would go during the weekdays. Yeah. I would go I'd go in the evenings after school. I would ride my bike from my high school there. I would do everything it took to get, like, I was so entranced. Well, the environment's so, like, different and fun, you know, and and the materiality of it. It's like, it's like nothing else. No. And I didn't think about it necessarily as making art. Yeah. It was an escape. It's like Play-Doh. It was fun. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. Yeah. The glazing, the firing. You learned all that stuff early. Everything, yeah. yeah. And then that place shut down, and I started going to a place called Craft Alliance. Mm-hmm. And that place had a, a program called Crafting the Future. And a man named Robert Longyear and Leslie Silverstein were two people who worked in the outreach program there. Yeah. And they came to my high school to put a mural. Mm-hmm. And they worked with upperclassmen. And I didn't really work on the mural, but I tried to help install. And so I went to my high school on a Saturday to help them install this thing. It was it was wild. And they said, hey, you, you should apply to be in this program called Crafting the Future. And I, I did. Yeah. And that's where I met Pam Keskinet, who went to the Kansas City Art Institute. I met Dan and Bev, all these people who had been going to this place for a long time. And really had all these skills. Mm-hmm. And I just, I wanted to learn them all. I wanted to know what it took. Like, I just wanted it to be there every day. That's now, a, I feel like that's a great thing about ceramics is that a lot of people can't afford to have kilns in their studio. Or, you right. know, like it's the kind of thing where you can go somewhere, there's facilities, and then you can meet all these people. It's in a way, it's like a communal environment in that yeah. sense. 
well, especially for learning. So. Yes, for learning is perfect. But now I'm at a point where I can't go back to no community right, art right, center. Right, yeah. I got to buy my own can. <laughs> I got to buy my own building. Yeah. And if anybody wants to come hang out with me, right. my door is open. <laughs> Just let me know. But I ain't going back to no community art center. I will go to hang out. I will go to spend time with friends and reminisce on the old days of being a student or a teacher at the places. But yeah, um, yeah it it's always a time and a place. What did you start out doing just like functional stuff? I mean like making cups? I made cups, bowls, plates, vases. I did everything. I mean and it wasn't like I liked making things, but I don't know if I ever took it like I gotta go and make these bowls. Right. I really wanna see can I make this bowl as big as I could with the amount of clay that I felt most comfortable with? Right can I like let's try to make a plate and like okay I'll make 10 plates that's fun let's mm-hmm. do 10 plates let's make this cylinder like let's do a good cylinder but being around older people they always suggested things to do like oh you should try throwing with 25 pounds I was like 25 pounds <laughs> you know and so they would offer suggestions and I'd learned so much so mm-hmm. Was it was about the doing? It wasn't about. It was having something to do, and then I could start making money from it. Yeah. Oh, there's a community. There's a there's a winter sale, Thanksgiving sale. I'll do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, another sale. I'll oh, I'll do that. And so then you know you put three hundred dollars in my pocket. Yeah. I'd carry some pottery home on the bus with me, taking the Metrolink. It took me about forty five minutes to an hour fifteen to get home. I would go from high school, catch the one of the buses straight to the studio. I'd get lunch, and then I'd be there all night. Studio closed at 9 o'clock. I'd be walking to catch the train, the Metrolink, yeah. and I'd get a bus, and it'd take me an hour or so. I'd take pottery on the bus with me. Somebody said, oh, what's that? I'll sell it to you, $10, $20, <laughs> and I'd sell my pottery on the bus. Make state. some money on the way home. Yeah. Now, since that was, you weren't really seeing that as a quote unquote art. You were just making these things and yes. selling them. What about art in like high school? You know, was that something you were into too? Or was it a little more separated? I did. I took art classes and my high school art teacher is actually like big in art education in the state of Missouri, mm-hmm. Tom Tobias. And a friend of mine lives right across the street from him. And he, he says, oh, Tom asks about you. <laughs> <laughs> And it's really special uh, for to hear that Tom thinks about me. Um, but I did. I took art classes, but it it just never clicked. Yeah, like making drawings and watching people paint just didn't click. I'm. I mean, growing up making with Legos, it just like really worked. Yeah, making stuff. On I can the see that. Wheel. I can see that correlation because with Legos, you. A lot of times, like if you're free building, you from know, nothing just, to something, yeah, you're just making it. Have you got material and you mold it into something? <laughs> and with clay, you're doing the same thing. In yeah, a way. I mean, and it was it's all um, so imaginative, right? In like a kind of, you build a model or build something, and in your mind, you can make it look like whatever you want. Yeah, but a painting or a drawing, it yields itself what it is because it's presented itself to you you can infer more on it right but it's like so one-to-one 
it is it in a way it is your mind on the paper or your mind on the canvas or panel yeah whereas in the ceramics and the legos i mean i would combine all my toys legos superheroes action figures collage everybody yeah plushies like all the plush toys they're out everybody's out dude between this description and the pokemon reference you don't know how (laughs) close this is to my son's room right now I have great hope that it's going to be a ceramic. <laughs> yeah, tur- he'll turn into a sculptor. Right. Just turn into a you know, sculptor with a lot of stuff. You no, know, Legos is a thing. They, he can just get lost oh forever. God. And I step on those things every And they hurt. They hurt. Because they're little and you don't mm-hmm. see them. And there's a lot of swords and a lot of hands. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I didn't really have... I we I got gifts of, like like specific things you could build right. like cars and star wars stuff yeah but i really like getting the big buckets yeah it's just making your own stuff four thousand right twenty thousand i got a gift of those one time and i can't find that bucket but i'd love to find that bucket yeah yeah he'll do that with the duplo ones the bigger ones and mm-hmm. just build cities oh them. yeah because there's no preset it doesn't nope. have to be a millennium falcon doesn't <laughs> I mean, and it's really hard to turn the Millennium Falcon into anything else. Right. It kind of predicts itself, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> and you feel a little weird making the Millennium yeah, exactly. Falcon into a small building. Yep. <laughs> yeah, because then you have a partial Millennium Falcon and you're like, oh, well. Uh, Limits the creativity a bit. Yeah. And so going to Craft Alliance Center for Art and Design and meeting Pam, I mean, she told me, she was such an important person to tell me that I could do something well. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't really understand like how much of an effect like mentorship and love like can have on a person. Totally. And so she influenced me and told me you should apply to art school i think before meeting pam i i had no idea about going to college i definitely didn't know what going to college for art was right let alone what it was like attending the kansas city art institute for the first like first day i was which like, is a big like it's i mean it blew my mind i had no idea what i was walking into yeah. and so i applied to the kansas city art institute in Kansas City, Missouri, and then I applied to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And the School of the Art Institute of Chicago gave me $44,000. I can see the letter in my head, and it was like 11000 your first year, 7000 your second year, and it just kept going down from there. And I was like, this doesn't, doesn't make sense. Yeah. Then a little bit after I got that letter, well, I got accepted to the Kansas City Art Institute, and then they gave me a letter. I got like $15,000 in scholarship. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand or know loans, so I didn't know if that was possible. Like, I didn't know what would, like, okay, you get fifteen grand, but the tuition is thirty. Like, I didn't really talk to anybody about what it really would be like if, like, what the next steps were. Right. But one day I left my high school. I got on the bus to go to Craft Alliance. Mm -hmm. It's like a 20, 30 minute bus ride. And Jonah Criswell called me, who's a professor at the Kansas City Art Institute right now. And he said, you know, I need to talk to you. I was like, okay, how are you doing? 
Oh, I'm great. Uh, I just want to tell you that letter that you got a little while ago. Oh, you can just throw that in the trash. I'm calling to offer you a full tuition scholarship to go to Kansas City Art Institute. Whoa. I, I screamed on that bus. I almost beat <laughs> myself. There was some old ladies on the bus, and I said, I'm going to college. I got a full tuition scholarship. I'm going to college. Oh, my God. Did they clap or tell you to clap? Oh, they just, like, oh, everybody just screamed and laughed and, like, <laughs> he said, woo. And I was just like, oh, my God. And... There's like it's nice to like share this with you. So now it's out in the public. Some people like recently have told me like all these rumors about all these people who like I went to college with and who they thought was supporting my education. Mm-hmm. I made art school. I made it through the Kansas City Art Institute with my Pell Grant, my full tuition scholarship, mm-hmm. selling my pottery, and mostly my grandmother. She she helped you. She helped me make it through. I mean, it like phone calls, conversations, sending me money. Yeah, it was hard. College was hard. She's yeah. College was really hard for me. It was rough. And like people think that I have like these white saviors in my life that like came down and gave me like granted me like millions of dollars to make it through college, and I was like. No, I have a lot of mentors and a lot of people who help remind me that perseverance is really a way to make it through. And right. I I give that to my, my aunt and my high school, one of my high school counselors, Judith Gaynor. She came in the middle of my time at the Kansas City Art Institute and she really, I met with her in her office all the time and she just really, she had some of the best inspirational quotes not and like not saying it to be inspirational, but saying it to really help you through. Yeah. And she really helped me through. And then in Kansas City I had really wanted to take advantage of every possibility. I had a full tuition scholarship. I applied for many I went to school. I went to school with like five outside scholarships. And you just on did top it. of yeah. it. You just got that and you know. I applied, I applied, I applied, I applied, I applied. When I go to the classroom and meet with students or go to studio visits, my visits are always about application. Oh, yeah. What does this mean and what are you doing with this? What is it showing to me or to anyone? And then where do you want it to go? How do you want it to exist in the world? And Judith Gaynor and... um, Dr. Mang, Russell Ferguson, Gary Fish, like all these people in my life, they all showed me in some way how to deal with the application. Yeah. Emotionally, systematically within the work, culturally. Mm-hmm. That's really... Uh, it's important, right, to have... You know, it's it's funny because no one ever you never really get taught that stuff. Right. Even like you were saying, like getting to college. My God. It's like I was going to school with people who got like the St. Louis Book Club to Yale University. Right. Yeah, and like, oh, I'm going to uh Bar- Berkeley School of Music. I'm going to Tufts. I'm like, what the fuck is Tufts? <laughs> right. What's Tufts? Yeah. 
And then I learned what Tufts is. I went to Portfolio Day at Washington University. Oh, you did the portfolio? When I was in high school, and I had no clue that I would be going to graduate school there. So I studied abroad for a year, a semester, seven months in Hungary in a small town outside of Budapest. It was, it changed my life. Well, travel really does it, right? Yeah. Oh, there's... I went to Vietnam, Thailand, and Laos for a month-long trip in Mm -hmm. the winter break of 2012, right after my first semester junior year. And then I went to Hungary for seven months. Oh, my God. I went to Hungary the summer before just for one month, and I told everybody, I was like, I'm coming back here. Yeah. I don't know what the hell I got to do, but I'm going to (laughs) be back here for sure. Right. And I got the Benjamin A. Gilman Scholarship from the government for people who are awarded the Pell Grant to go to college and they gave me five grand or 4,500 or something like that. And it was, I mean, and I did a fundraiser and all these people helped me, which was so beautiful. Paul and Sue store who are so gracious in St. Louis and they support the St. Louis public schools programming, specifically Metro academic and classical high school mm-hmm. students. And Paul and Sue gave me a gift. And I just like, you know, after a while, it really takes a village, and I don't think people really want to accept that. Right. It really takes a team. It really takes love to really make it happen. Yeah, but it also takes you being hyper motivated to true to true. knock down those doors, and like, you know, <laughs> or just say, "I out. need help." Right. I'm having a hard time. I, can I get your help? Yeah. And so many people have been able to and been so giving and sharing in my life that I'm just I can I the one of the only ways that I really feel that I'm like I'm able to really thoroughly say thank you is by continuing to do the best that I can. Yeah. Then well, I went to your shows, right? You know the work. Yeah, the exhibitions, the books, and making sure to send them the books and like com- be in communication with them. And even though I don't talk to all of them all the time. They're definitely in my heart. Like, yeah. I know that I'm in theirs. Right. And then I went from Hungary. I came back to the U.S. And then uh, social pottery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did, like, an amazing art, 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 you know, out art outside booth. Oh, yeah. And I took all the things that I had. And I, like, I think I, I hustled, like, so many pieces of pottery. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I was organizing this all by myself. I mean, I would look up stuff on callforentry.org. I tell people all the time, call for entry. Right. Juried art services. Like, do these things. Like, and I, so I took, I schlepped all these bins full of stuff to the Soulard market. And I sold just about all that I had. And somebody's like, oh, I love that. I, you want it? I sell it to you $50. They say, oh, no, uh, $40. Yeah, I got two twenty. Here you go. You can have it. Have a hallelujah. Good, goodbye. Thank you so much. And then I went to study abroad in Jerusalem for, uh, I think, four or six months. And I mean, my like going from Southeast Asia to Central Europe to the middle of Eurasia. Yeah. I, my name's Khalil, and I'm not an Arab. I'm not Arab, and I'm right. not Muslim. Uh, but Khalil has been Khalil Gibran this dynamic of my father being named Gibran and me being named Khalil has been, I've, I've learned a lot. And that's one, like not only being in places and seeing 
varieties of cultural existence happening simultaneously in one space and then we're all on this planet at the same time and it's all happening concurrently but being connected to a cultural like experience that's not necessarily mine Mm -hmm. but I'm connected to it tangentially that when I went to Jerusalem and I said my name's Khalil it was like on one side I get looked like this and then on the other side I get looked like this (laughs) and you know one look is like oh we're gonna put you in detainment for four and a half hours naked in the airport despite the college and the university giving you a letter saying that you were meant to be here for school right and then on the other side it's like I was welcomed and I was shared like so much like my friends and I would go to Ramallah or Hebron we went to Jericho and you know we went we walked in a restaurant it was empty mm-hmm. but they were more than gracious to open their doors and give us food yeah and then I go to like some restaurants and it's like super expensive it's really clean mm-hmm. but it's like sterile the communication the community and it's such a tumultuous situation that's going on over there right yeah for sure and it's heartbreaking and seemingly non-stop never ending i mean now with trump supporting a uh settlement in the west bank it's just like i mean between that and the people who are being collected and rounded up in our country here it's just it's scary it is. I mean, change. And I was on the I was on the side of receiving some of that. Yeah. When I was leaving, and I just like tell myself, I'm never, I'm not going back. Even like, I mean, now I'm going. I went to Colombia for two weeks earlier this year, mm-hmm. a part of a research program when I was doing a re- residency at Alfred University, and that was really exciting because I'd never been to South America yet. And in November, I'm going to be presenting a presentation at the Singapore Biennial, curated nice. by Patrick Flores. Um, and I've, they, so I'll go to Singapore too. And it's, it's amazing to be able to have these experiences to keep traveling and keep expanding my engagement with the broader world outside of the States because sometimes. People are like, oh, I got to get out of the States. I got to run away. I got, I can't live in the United States. And it's like, okay, but where are you going to live? Right. Where are you going to make money? You know, it's like capitalism's built for the wealthy. It's not, and it's not built for the faint of heart either. Right. And it's like, I don't want to run away from the States, but I just, it gives me, it gives me so much life and breath to see the to see the length at which like human existence is going like the fact that there is such a broad swath of life just like it reinvigorates me yeah it's it's you know it, like that analogy of the the you know the Trump thing and all that, or not the analogy, but that. that ex- <laughs> I wish it wasn't. I wish it was something that wasn't real. <laughs> I know it's, it's like a bad dream. Um, there, there's. I always have this thought, and I think a lot of people think, well, like, you know, this is like the last gasp of like a generation or of an ideology. But you realize that no, there's just people. It's evolved. Yeah, there's just people who are 
that way. Oh my God! Drive and, through, drive through rural any state in this country. Oh, I, I've when, the, and this was back in like the early two thousands when I was in a band and we would go on tour, and you drive through Middle America. I mean, no, you can go to rural New York State. You don't have to go to Middle America. You can go. Oh no, I mean Middle America, not like geographically. I'm talking about oh. like the oh idea yeah of the middle, middle yeah, yeah. Right. the middle of a state, right? <laughs> Pennsylvania. <laughs> You know, it's that, brutal, but it's so beautiful. You know, it's so know. sad that all this tr- tr- troubling ideology is festering in the bo- in the bones of this country, in the in the flesh, in the muscle of this country. It's like some of the most beautiful landscapes. Right. You drive from New York to St. Louis, go through West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Missouri, like Illinois. Some of the beautiful, most beautiful land. Yeah. But you'd never live there because you'd be worried. <laughs> it's not that I'd never live there. It's like, I, I would want to, I want to buy, I'd buy 20 acres. And then, you know, we'd, we need to build a school. We need to build, we'd have a farm. We'd have, you know, solar energy. We'd have water energy. I'd have wind energy. I'd have my studio. We'd be self-sustaining hell yeah we it'd be like building a little town i'd have a factory producing brick we'd be making pipe we'd be doing everything and i think like knowing and i'm i'm grown i'm born to a mixed parentage but i you know i recognize that i'm born to a mixed parentage but i identify as being black and i deal with the experience of being black in this country and black in the world um you know being having ancestors that were enslaved and forced to create the infrastructure of this country and allowed and gave like their labor gave white people wealth Mm -hmm. that we see and like they're continuing to build life off of um my family doesn't have that. And that wealth is used to suppress... Yeah, us. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fucked up. It is, for sure. Um, I mean, granted, one thing that my family does have is family. But when I think about going forward in my future and my desire and um, building a world and building a life for myself, continuing to build a life for myself, it it in, it involves building actually but actually building i had a friend come to my studio in st louis and she's like oh it's so nice do you do you still make pottery and she like made a cup form with her hand Uh like something small and intimate (laughs) and i just bought a a building in st louis that was built in 1921 and I, i we're standing right in front on the sidewalk and i tell her i was like you know actually if you just turn around here with me I want my work to be this big. Mm-hmm. And I reached my arms out and I showed her the two large brick, red brick buildings across the street. It's like, I want to re, re, I want to build. I don't want to play. Right. Making little pinch pots. I've done that. Yeah. And I do that with my students as exercises uh, to think about bigger things mm-hmm. because that's really the only way it's going to change. It's right. like, we have to deal with it from multiple angles. Right. Well, before I get to the work itself in this, in this show and the past shows, 
I d- real quick on the I I feel like travel is such an important uh, part of that equation of like understanding education diversity. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think the problem is when people don't travel and they're stuck in their communities or they're not exposed to diversity or a diversity of a place or people or ideas. And that's when things get problematic. But going to Florence isn't a study abroad trip. No. Going no. to Florence, going to Florence, you're going to, you know, I'm, I'm just, this is just like a, this is an example, but like so many schools like, oh, I'm going to send you, we're going to go to London. Right. We're going to go to Berlin. We're going to do a Euro trip. Yeah. And it's like, okay, cool. You could do a Euro trip, but you can't stay in like a lavish apartment and like only uh, go visit the hipster places in Berlin. Like actually look at what's going on in these countries. Like the immigrant population in Berlin is segregated. It's not cleaned up like a lot of Berlin and people love Berlin. Yeah. It's so amazing. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, it's cool. But like you still get the same experiences of uh, violence. Right. Towards a variety of communities. Yeah. No, I but I think I'm not talking about the ultimate solution. I'm just talking about like a first step. Oh, yeah. I mean, of like, but like go somewhere where you don't see other people like that look like you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. I love to yeah. go to Japan because I just don't. I oh feel my God. like I'm Japan s- is so beautiful. It is. It's amazing. I have and yet to go. It, well, you sh- especially as someone who spent a lot of time with Pokemon. <laughs> <is> he- <laughs> it's funny. I was teaching there for a summer, uh, two summers ago, and uh, my son was really into Pokemon Go. Yeah, so you I would can't see do that. You would see scores of businessmen coming out from like to take a break outside. <laughs> catching Pokemon <laughs> in business suits. It's like a totally different, but honestly that idea of just understanding, because I feel like a lot of that kind of mindset of, you know, whether it's fear, racism, you know, uh, just all that comes from like ignorance and not having experiences that are diverse from your own. Yeah. So if you're all in a group and everyone's bitching about the same things, mm-hmm. you don't even know about these other people or these right. other situations and then you just come to those are like the strongest held realizations for some reason that are based on no experience they're just based on I don't know anyone else I don't know any other experience or an inherited uh, inherited an inherited reality of like acceptance of the cognitive dissonance the generational cognitive dissonance that's in, exactly. that's been in, uh, influenced and infected in certain right. people's lives and that gets broken if it can get broken i feel like that gets when broken you go places by where experience you, yep where you go places where people don't look like you right and you're not doing what you would do you're doing this is something sometimes like what you're being guided to yeah. do totally. like i remember we went when i was in vietnam we went we went to this town, this little village outside of Dien Bien Phu, which is the last battle site of the French in Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And in this village, we walked up to the area where Jap had his secret hideout where he would be away to where he could command the Vietnam army and like attack the French, but like be away enough. Yeah. And around the corner from that area, there was a family, and the grandmother's hands were black. 
not not brown. They were right. black. Right. Because she had been dying, like generationally dying in this indigo vat in the middle of their space, their mm-hmm. living space. They had one light bulb. Their house was filled with smoke because, and there was smoke on the walls. There was uh, soot on the walls because they're burning the wood in their home. Mm-hmm. The children are smiling. They're eating. They had a space for memory of family members passed on the walls. And I just remember seeing her hands and like the layers of indigo, like just so present. Like it's present in the clothes that they were wearing, it's present in their day to day. And they were, it's a mountain. They're living on the side of a mountain. Yeah. They had their water buffalo. They had their, you know, their, their things going on. And so many people I know would go to an experience like that and just judge. Like, you know, they don't, they live in an impoverished environment. Their experience is so impoverished. Yeah. But it's like, in a lot of ways, that's their life. And if we take and compare, what if, what if colonization didn't attack the world? And what would the world look like had Europeans not invested a kind of infiltration on everyone else? What would, would there be space for another evolution to occur? Like we have Eurocentrism and Eurocentric dominance in some parts of the world, but then untouched, untouched communities. How would technology look if they were able to evolve on their own? Mm-hmm. What would what would food look like? What would community outreach look like? Yeah, you wonder how much of that is human nature or how much of it is learned through other culture, other sort of oppressive forces or whatever, you know, because there's probably some people, I mean, you know, you'll, you'll hear about an island where people were never, no one ever settled and, and they're still <laughs> living the same <laughs> day, way they were like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago or, whatever it is you know like how much technology is just human nature of like wanting to learn and progress or right. trying to build or you know like building legos or something and Why so many ways survive love building legos <laughs> you know what i mean man yeah i mean those are big questions is that so well let's talk about your work you know people want to hear about what you how all that that we just talked about is like gets channeled into like what you're making well, the That's first street, simple simple question. <laughs> yeah, I mean the first the first part of it is I came to New York City when I was uh, nineteen to do a month long residency at the New York City residency program that now doesn't exist anymore down in Dumbo. Mm-hmm. And we Russell Ferguson was a faculty is a faculty member at the Kansas City Art Institute, and he brought a group of us to to New York and we just had a studio space and we just had to get to work. I didn't know what that meant. So I had a pad of newsprint and I had some colored pencils and I had some markers. So I started making some drawings. Mm -hmm. And that first flight experience flying into New York and seeing the difference between the partitioning of the land being broken up by the streets and the geometries that were made and then flying into LaGuardia airport and like seeing lower Manhattan. Oh my God. Yeah. 
I was 19. I'd never seen New York before, but I knew I had to come. And so I started making some drawings that were a constructed perspective, an imaginative, imagined perspective of the collapsing of those buildings, mirroring uh, the, the, the partitioning of the street in rural areas of the United States. And so the city from then, from 2011 to now, it's, it's, I've always been continuing that, that evolution from those drawings. Yeah. But more, a little more recent, um, in, I studied abroad in Hungary at a place called the International Ceramic Studio in Kecskemét, Hungary. And it's a nonprofit organization. I think now is like really supported by the government. But they have a very special, um, very special materials that you can work with there. That are it's a ceramic casting slip that's engineered really beautifully, and mm-hmm. it can do things that other materials can't really do, um, or different clays can do. And so, I had had a like tough semester in Kansas City. And I said, I'm going to Hungary. I make work I never, I've never seen before. Yeah, I'm gonna turn it around. Do something new. I'm gonna do something new. So I started trying different things, and they weren't working out. And I tried to apply some colored material to some paper, and then dip it in clay and see what would happen. And put it in a mold so it'd be like a specific geometry, and the layers in the clay would be different colors. And this was before I knew that you could mix powder into clay and mm-hmm. change the color of right. it. So I was trying to think of a way to do it. And so I just like, I said, fuck it. I'm, I'm crumbling up the paper and I just threw it in a mold and I filled the mold up with uh, organic material mm-hmm. or things that would burn away. Right. Through that whole semester, I had burned so much stuff, rice, fish, food, my box of socks, ribbon, like I just did everything, and so I was just adding it to the clay, and then firing it, and, and then burning all of it away. With, yeah, but the negative space, the negative space of the objects that are burned away, and I cut them open with a masonry saw. And I had seen somebody do something like this earlier, and she was burning books, mm-hmm. Bibles, kind of interesting, it's intense, uh, yeah, very intense. <laughs> um, but for me, it wasn't. It was about like a a record mm-hmm. uh, they were their fossils where the fossilization uh was the was the negative space the objects didn't exist anymore but the the idea of them existed yeah and this was one of the most complicated abstractions that i had ever dealt with to date and i had no clue how to like deal with that abstraction or communicate that abstraction and so from there I studied abroad in Jerusalem I made some more sculptures similar out of black brown and red clay and then I came back to Kansas City and I had a great studio visit with uh, a faculty member from VCU and he said you know some of your work is really interesting because it looks like this expansive landscape and it could be monumental. And then in some of your works, you have objects in them or references to objects that create a scale relationship to the viewer 
that's more understandable of place and space. Mm-hmm. So then I started slip casting to go boxes, soda cans, soda bottles in one side of my studio and making these amassment objects. And then the other side of my studio, I was just taking risks with other materials, making the biggest pinch pot I could make mm-hmm. or the biggest coil pot or whatever. Or i will be, I remember one of my final projects for the Art Institute was um, a collaged, I've, I've collected all this found wood, tons of it. And I collaged it over the walls of the studio and I built an eight foot square wall that came out of the studio wall perpendicularly. So you kind of had like, I created this situation that you had to walk around and deal with this collaged wood environment and I called it in remembrance of one side had a concrete uh, ashtray that looked like a Roman urn Mm -hmm. and on the other side I had made a ceramic replica of it but it it shrank and it instead of it having a hole to put cigarettes in um, I put an image of cigarettes on top of the flat plane of the surface of the ceramic replica and so at the same time of like making this very specific work about the street because I remember looking out my studio window in college and I saw the drainage hole the sewer hole in the sidewalk and I saw that stuff was collecting there Mm -hmm. soda bottles and different trash and I said well if that's there is there a way to make and not like make but make a replication of that before it goes into the sewer mm-hmm. as a kind of time capsule? I remember I made the sculptures one semester with the two go boxes and everything, and I let them sit in my apartment for quite a while, and then the next semester I brought them back to the studio and I worked on them one by one on top of whatever other work I was doing. Yeah. And I remember at my critique, I brought one of those final sculptures and they were like, Oh, we talked about this already. And they completely disregarded the 35 firings that I had done with it, with the enamel and the decals and the luster. Yeah. I'd spent all this time reworking this idea. And that was the, that's the foundation of the street mass sculptures that I, that people can see now. And yeah. that, and so I put that work away and then I graduated from undergrad 2015 with a bachelor's in art history and ceramics and uh, I got two certificates in eight, one in Asian studies and one in social practice mm-hmm. and Asian my Asian studies focus was more or less on Japanese prints on Edo period prints Ukiyo-he? oh yeah yeah wow the it's hair my- it's my favorite. The hair. <laughs> the hair just messes me up. Yeah, it's good. And then social practice is like a lot more conceptual and political. I didn't, I don't necessarily think, I don't make social practice based work. Mm-hmm. I do like to collaborate or work with other people, but I don't really, I'm not making no social practice. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with social practice, but I'm just not doing it. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I was, I applied to, indifferent from undergrad, but to grad school, 
I applied to seven schools, six or seven schools. I had I came back from studying abroad in Jerusalem and I met a woman named Ari Fish who's still a great friend of mine today and she said, Khalil, you're so good. You were great. You're working so hard. You gotta go to the best grad school. She said, You gotta go to Yale. Mm-hmm. I was like, I wanna go to Yale. And I was telling everybody, <laughs> I wanna go to Yale. And I was like, and people were like, <laughs> You're not getting into Yale. Just let that one go, buddy. <laughs> And I was like, no, I'm going to apply. I'm going to put my foot forward. I'm throwing my hat in the ring Mm -hmm. because it's not necessarily about what I'm making, but it's also about what I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. I got a letter from Martin Kersels telling me if you want to advance your education in ceramics, you need to look for your graduate. You need to look for your graduate school elsewhere. I was like, just didn't really have ceramic. I was like, shit. I was like, but it's not just about making with clay. Right. I was making with other things. And so that kind of broke my heart, but so I didn't get into Yale. I didn't get into Columbia. I did get into SAIC sculpture, and I got into SAIC ceramics with a full tuition scholarship. Nice. I was waitlisted at UCLA for sculpture. I should have maybe applied for ceramics, but it was really interesting graduating from BFA because I thought, yeah, I was like, Oh, I thought I was making sculpture. I knew I was making sculpture. People always, they still see, oh, you're making ceramics. It's like, what fucking piece of ceramics do you know that is 8 by 14 fucking feet? (laughs) Well, I think people, it's that they just, if you're using clay, no matter how it comes out, they're going to say it's ceramics. I mean, and I don't mind that, but like acknowledge that it's eight by 14 feet. And it can exist in the realm of a sculpture yeah. education. Or, or, or in the realm of architecture. Art. Yeah, and art yeah. in general. In space. Like right. you can make ceramic work deal with space. Didn't you see the woman from South America with the solar show at Hauser and Worth? Right. Like that was all wet clay. Yeah. Mocha, they had to redo the tables because the wet clay mold got so moldy on the tables. They had to rebuild the, the, the hardware, the furniture. Because in the middle of the show, it was moldy. Do you think schools without, I, I mean, I have no idea, but do you think schools without ceramic department would be concerned for a student who's using ceramic or clay because there's no kilns and there's no thing facilities? Is, thing is, is Aza, a recent grad from Yale University, used ceramics in her thesis. Yeah. And it was wet and she fired it and some of her work was plaster and she shows with Helena Ann Rather. Well, there's so many people who go to school for one thing and then they're totally, True. they come out with like, you know, there were people in and painting get, department making sculptures and sculpture right. and painting. And <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, you put your foot in the door and then yeah. once you're in, you just do whatever you want. So and that's all I was asking Martin and right. the team at Yale to do for me. I come in making things out of clay. I leave making, I don't know, performance work where I'm throwing little women across the room. <laughs> <laughs> No one would ever do that. Yeah, you know, nobody <laughs> would ever do that. Yeah, you know, you, it's like, give me the opportunity too, despite what you, your preconceived notions of what art making is. Yeah, you, ju- you did just fine with that. Right. And so I, I. New Haven, you know. Oh, God. I just drove back from there yesterday. But, and then I applied to Washington University in St. Louis as a safe option. Mm-hmm. And I'd applied for something called the Chancellor's Graduate Fellowship. And the Chancellor's Graduate Fellowship applied, like, it gave me a big old stipend, free tuition, health mm-hmm. insurance, and some of my best friends that I have made in my life, Adelaide and Lyndon. 
and they Lyndon just finished the Jan Van Eyck Academy in the Netherlands and now he's doing a residency at the Irish Museum of Modern Art Nice. and Adelaide did a residency in Ghana she's done a residency in Senegal she did the Cité in Paris and now she's with Lyndon in, in Ireland they're both amazing artists and some of the best role models I could have I've learned so much from being connected with them and it was really because of the Chances Fellowship yeah I mean, I've met and made friends that are in social work, social sciences, uh, doctors, like engineers, psychiatrists, like grad school. I was around people who were really because the fellowship was about diversifying the collegiate professoriate. And one day and I and I have thought about it in teaching and. But most of the program, it was about. The fellowship was for people earning terminal degrees. So MFA is a terminal degree, yeah. but in a school like Washington University, that provides or offers quite the breadth of terminal degree programs. It's a world of people to meet. Yeah, it was beautiful. Well, the, the thing about schools too is like what you're saying with the Yale, Columbia, or whatever. There's the the schools that just are touted as really good schools, right? Because the default is they bring in good artists, or mm-hmm. I don't know, they have good facilities and all that stuff. But or they not, make you rich after you graduate, and then you have a bunch of other people around you who are also rich who also went to the same school. Yeah, I don't know the, and you who, just circle what school jerking. Do, what school does that though? <laughs> like out of I went to Yale. I'm not rich. I out of my graduating class, I would say maybe there's. I don't want to get it wrong, but I think like maybe three or four people out of my graduating class who were here working and not rich, but just working yeah. to work. So I think some of that is like, and I, you know, this is ideal yeah, or like, idyllic view. Right. Or Instagram. Yeah, but shit, it's, everyone makes it's stuff so, look good in Instagram. Everyone has an amazing life on Instagram. I Everyone's tried. taking vacations I, I, that look gorgeous. You're right. You know, everyone frames <laughs> wedding and, photos. Yeah, that you can't believe. It. I mean, you no, know. you can't. And that's the, the but that's thing. a pressure. I was thinking about that earlier when you were talking about you know how you know the 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 family on the hillside of the mountain who's you know got that little house with the yep. the fire, and you know like the the flip of that is like someone who's wealthy in the United States, say who you know has a good education and makes a lot of money. Do you know how infrequently those people are happy? I knew you were about to say that. It's very true. We've set that so up. So unhappy. We Capitalism in our society set that up as the end all be all. That's quote unquote success. Yeah. That's not happiness. No. So yeah, if you want to be successful, I guess if you want to drive a Range Rover or have a beautiful place or whatever, that's not happiness. Or make meaningless artwork. <laughs> but the thing is, yeah, <laughs> with making art, it's like you're isn't the payoff really being able to do something you love to do not so much like making bank because there's not that many people to be honest the uh, the percentage of artists who are living off their work are barely living off the work the percentage of artists who are making a ton of money is like zero yeah it's like zero point zero zero one percent of working artists who are like quote unquote rich or it's it's a uh, and that's something I've been thinking about is like people are like I know people who got a lot of money and they buy drugs or they buy a big old car they got they, a lot of problems yeah they do all this <laughs> stuff and 
and for me, what I'm thinking about is I have my exhibitions and sell my work and participate and engage, and I love it. But I'm putting my money back and putting my money somewhere where it can come back to me. Yeah. So I'm working on buying a second building in St. Louis right now. Maybe I'll put an offer in on Friday, uh, September 6th. And it's for a small warehouse building. Yeah. 4,400 square feet. It's really cinder blocks. But it, it'd be my cinder blocks. Right. You can do what, <laughs> again, to my point. Yeah. You just want to keep doing your thing. Like you yep. want to keep creating an environment where you can keep making work and being creative. Right. And, and not, so, you know, like hitting a club or like driving, you know, the McLaren or whatever. You know Which what I mean? could be nice I don't know, my, for you know, a my, night. My son asked me the other day, he's like, because he gets my perspective on things. But he said, like, if you could have a Lamborghini, would you have it if someone just gave it to you? And I said, no, I don't want a Lamborghini. And he's like, they're giving it to you. I was like, yeah, I'm not a Lamborghini guy. But can I sell the Lamborghini if I got it? I guess you could. Like, could I like, but I think he's, could talk, I total it? He's not, he's not interested in the idea of like making money off of it. He's interested <laughs> in the idea of like, would you roll around in a Lamborghini and would I be in that car when you are rolling around? <laughs> <laughs> can I share in your and, experience of someone giving you a gift? <laughs> and can I, I too get a gift? I think it's confusing to him that I say, no, I would I don't want a Lamborghini. Yeah. Even if someone gave it to me, I wouldn't want a Lamborghini. I mean, gas is expensive for Lamborghini. The, I think the insurance might be prohibitive. Yeah, you know how much it is to insure one. <laughs> Not to mention, they're half a million dollar vehicles. Yeah, and it's calling a lot of attention in in a very specific kind of an attention that that's not a good look for me. You yeah. Know? So I, you know, I, I think to that point, you know, the money, the status, or whatever. That's all. It's a construct that has become really important for some reason in our society. That I think. Well, it's always know, been there. I mean, the bourgeois has always been. Yeah, but the present, but, but like desiring to, to everyone. be right. It used to be like, yeah, I'm never going to hit that one percent or whatever. You know what I mean? Now it's like everyone's. Not, like, I don't have a French chateau. Sorry. You know, if I could. we're not staying in my French chateau, <laughs> we have to go to my little apartment in Paris. Right. Yeah, my New York apartment. Well, now it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna put this <laughs> I'm gonna put this new track on SoundCloud and I'm gonna blow up. Next yeah. Thing you know, yeah. world tour. Yeah. Which, yeah, that might happen with one or two humans on the planet, but for most people, not so much. Yeah. But it gives you the the feeling of like, I'm going to get discovered. And it's really about like really hard work, being dedicated to something you're doing and doing it even when you don't have money, yeah. doing it even when it's not glamorous or whatever. You know, if you're doing it for that stuff, it's it's not going to make you happy anyway. And it's for the wrong reason, probably. And so from like for me in grad school and like the, like. And it's like now working on like about to open the second solo show in New York. I'm where I've always wanted to be. It looks like a good spot from where I am. So, you know, the social stuff and like thinking about like school and everything. It's really. It's really a part of the digital more or less. Yeah. And and so that's part of why it's so prevalent in my work, like battling and dealing with social constructs. The work is a a lot of the work is a is a foil or is a is tromploid. It's not real. Isn't it funny that to 
almost get to talk about the realest stuff, you have to make artifice, which is like art, which mm-hmm. is fake. <laughs> Do you, know you make I mean? it an abstraction? Yeah. Uh, well, that's that's why I love abstract. That's what abstraction is. It's like you know, getting past the veneer of whatever something is yeah. and straight to it. But there's I'll, so many people who can't handle no. that. It's just like, wait, that's just circles and dots and you know, altering the real. But it's not. No, it's like get getting it down to the most you know basic form of things yeah. which a lot of people don't like they want the the veneer it's easier to hide behind the veneer the, the image of right and so when i was so i i went to grad school and i did a lot of stuff in st louis and made a lot of friends and a woman named sylvia kabowski came to visit washington university in the spring of 2017 and she was visiting a video class not visiting the MFA program. And she saw my work in my studio from when I studied abroad. And she inquired via email to me saying she wanted to buy one. I said, okay, you know, you just pay the shipping, you know. And it's like, here, I'll box it up. I'll send it to you. Send me a photo of what it looks like in your house. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, her and her husband have an amazing collection of different ceramic objects. And she's like, you know, I'm just in an email. She said, I'm going to introduce you to some friends I know and have galleries in New York. She introduced me to Fody, and Fody gave me a two and a half hour visit on FaceTime. He offered me to be in a group show a couple summers ago, and then said, "He said this is how he said it on the phone. He said, you know, maybe there's a couple opportunities we could work together. Uh, <laughs> I, something maybe, you know, there's something maybe in this, you know, this group show. Maybe something late summer, maybe something this fall, possibly, possibly. You know, like you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. You know." Well, the steam touch. Is it too up. soon? Is it too soon? You right. know, it's a group show in May. Too soon? I said, no, it ain't too soon. I got. I just packed up the work. I'm sending it to FedEx tomorrow. Here's the tracking number. <laughs> Here's the tracking number. I got it in the face in the studio visit. Right. And I think that sending it and engaging in that way, it was really special. Yeah. And I sent the work. I came to New York. I was like. You know, some people will say, oh, it's too expensive. I can't I can't afford it. It's like, but that single trip can make the difference of your life. Right. Showing up can be the difference of your life. My friend Andre uh, organized an exhibition in the basement of this apartment in Bushwick. Mm-hmm. And he asked me to put a piece in. And I had like put a, my great, great, my great grandmother made a, my mother's, my, one of my mother's, one of my grandmothers on my mother's side made me a quilt of all 50 states with all 50 states flowers. Mm -hmm. I put that on a platform with one of my toys that I had when I was a child. It was a Megatron dragon Mm -hmm. transformer. And I put those on a platform and that was my piece in the show. And so I came for that too. I was like, you got to show up. And so I showed up and it's a great time. I came to the opening. It was a reading that night because Calicoon Fine Arts is always works with Nightboat Books, mm-hmm. which is an amazing publication, uh, publishing house for poet, poets and poetry books. Um, it was great. After party, Cy Gavin was in the show. Got to meet Cy Gavin. Uh, Sylvia was also in the show. Didn't get to meet Sylvia, even though she had introduced me to the gallery. I actually, you know, funny, two years later, I still have yet to meet Sylvia. It's funny how that works sometimes, right? (laughs) And I 
go home. Fody's like, you have any other work? I was like, oh yeah, I have these prints. They're three and a half feet square. Would you like, I'll send them to you. I packed them up and sent them to New York too. He's like, ah, well, let's apply to Art Basel, Switzerland. I was like, what? You want to apply to Art Basel, Switzerland? And then he said, a couple of days later or something, he's like, would you like to have a solo show at the gallery? December, would December work for you? I was like, well, I'm going to Hungary for a six-week residency. So if I'm going to have a show, I need to make the work now. Mm -hmm. And so that work about the street was lying dormant for two years, two and a half years, three years. I got an opportunity to open that door again. Right. And so my solo exhibition in the fall of 2017 is called Streets Chains Cocktails. And it was me working through and reflecting on the time when Michael Brown was murdered in mm-hmm. St. Louis. And I remember I was in college and I was working in the studio and I was in the basement or the lower level of the ceramics building in Kansas City. And I remember the night that Darren Wilson was acquitted. And I just I just couldn't stop crying. Yeah. In my studio, my friend Shaniqua came to visit me. And she and I were applying to grad school at the same time together. And it was so helpful to be able to have her and work with her. And just, it still is. We're still good friends. And she's going to open a show, two shows in Kansas City coming up. One at Hall Contemporary and another one with another space. And and so my show, that show was about was about that. It was a lining historical colonial violence to the evolution of violence against black people today. Mm-hmm. And it rendered itself in, in ceramic objects that were replications or a phenomena of the street that then these, like I was making the work in 2017 using articles that were written and published in 2014 and now, but the work will live forever. So the time was a, is able to span quite a few stamps. Yeah. And at the same time of making those works, uh, Bruce Hartman, the curator and director of the Nerman Museum of Contemporary Art in Overland Park, Kansas, invited mm-hmm. me to be in a group show. And he came to visit, and I, I showed him, oh, I was like, I'm making these big pieces over here. And then I'm also making these smaller ones. He's like, oh, I'll take all seven of the small ones. I was like, really? Shit, I need those for my show. Because <laughs> I thought that those were the ones I was going to be showing in New York. Right. And it just worked out. I made the work in two months. I hired friends to help me create the work. It was nuts. That was It was 18-hour yeah. days, Monday through Sunday. I wasn't sleeping. I was doing it. I was eating ice cream. <laughs> I went to the store, I bought lunch and I'd go I go to the grocery store, buy snacks, go to the studio, work it out. Yeah. And it's a great opportunity, right? Yeah. yeah. And to have Fody support and always being able to talk to him and the team at the gallery was just really helpful. And I, I then I came. And since then, the work has grown 
a lot. I had a solo exhibition at Wesleyan University called Street Matter, Decay and Forever, Golden Age. And the show is the dealing with the space between the street and the sky with, with representations of the, the street in prints and then the sky in a digital vinyl print that adorned a large wooden structure that I call mobile structure, mobile, uh, mobile monument, mobile structure, road and relief, cortege, Malcolm Martin, stop, drop and roll. And it's like, a, it's this idea of making a model of a monument that can be put together and taken apart over time and put in certain places. One side has this idyllic image of the sky and in the back is a 25 foot long flag, U.S. flag that's not really a U.S. flag because I made it. I did a six-week residency in Venice in 2016 in the middle of graduate school and I was so exhausted by school and everybody at the residency, Sam, uh, Greg, Egle, Morgan, all these people were like, when are you going to get to work? You sit here and eat watermelon all day and watch TV and play games on your computer, but you you haven't made anything. I was like, look, I'm in grad school. This month for me is a break. Leave me alone. <laughs> I'm eating ice cream. I'm in Venice. I'd tell you a really nasty story, but I, I'll save that for off the air. But <laughs> I mean, it was a crazy time in Venice and I it was hot and sticky and mosquitoes and it was in some ways it was so horrible and in some ways it was so amazing to just be free to mind my business yeah and that's what i basically was telling everybody who was telling me to get to work i was saying that sometimes right i'm minding mine you should mind yours (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) and the last like three weeks of the residency i like carved the cardboard I had cardstock they had cardstock and they shellacked it and that's how they did relief print that's how at this studio they did relief printing Mm -hmm. I'd carved 50 stars and made this like uh, imaginative American flag US flag not American flag US flag Mm -hmm. when we say America it includes South America Central America and Canada right and so I'm really trying to work on like I don't call ceramic wares or dishwares China because yeah. that's pejorative. Right. That's why I call it dishware. And also in, in ceramic processes, there's a, something called China painting. Mm-hmm. And I call it overglaze enamel. And just like take the pejoratives and the like right. racism out of yeah. daily language or material language. And so I made these 50 stars and I started cutting strips. And I tell you, I printed these flags were 11 feet. I was printing them. I'd take a whole sheet of paper. The flag is made out of six pieces of like a meter by a meter and a half sheets of paper. Mm-hmm. Huge work. Yeah. And I filled up the whole dry rack. They were like, oh, my God. Uh, oh, so awesome. Cool. This is great. I was like, <laughs> see, I just need to break. And then I, you know, I came through. get the gas in my, in my <laughs> engine and then just rev it a little bit. And then boom, just, just and so it was nice to do the show at Wesleyan and work with Rosemary, Aiden, uh, Ben, and everybody. The whole team, the whole school was just like really supportive and 
as my first show, it had a lot of commissions, a lot of work made specifically for the galleries. Mm -hmm. And that was like, that it's still like, it's been a year and I just can't believe that it's been a year. But when did you start working on the work for this show? Which show? The show that you're Oh, upstairs? Oh, the, I started working on this show for Calicoon in February. Mm Mm-hmm. It took me February, March, April, May. It took me four months to make. A, I mean, I made a lot of work. I was finishing a residency and I made so much work. I had so much material available to me and I had so much idea, so many ideas. My street view sculptures, the street man sculptures, they use molds of actual objects. And so the to-go boxes, when I take a mold from an actual object, when it's made in clay, it shrinks so much. During this residency, I started to work with people who can do 3D modeling and 3D printing. Mm -hmm. So I'm starting to print actual objects 20% larger and then making a mold from them. So So it shrinks to the actual size. Yes. And so it took me a little while to try to figure that out. And it took me a little while to figure out the color of the clay that I wanted and the recipe of the stoneware used in the show called Black Ice at Calicoon Fine Arts is really special. And I had just come back from Columbia. I knew, so starting to work on and think about are two different times. I came to New York in December November before Art Basel Miami Beach Mm -hmm. and I'd measured the gallery and I said I'm going to make a work this big and Lynn Malazuski one of the directors at Calicoon she she helped me measure out the space and I was like yep I'm going to make a piece this big I'm going to make it 10 by 10 by 20 I was like and I didn't know what that actually meant and looked like because I wasn't in the studio yet and then in February, I just come back from Colombia, went to Bogota and Medellin. Man. Amazing. Breathtaking. I mean, and really, really complicated. Yeah. You know, you have, you have colonialism and like such a strong presence of colorism in a community. And then, and then you have such trauma, recent trauma yeah. of the drug war or drug wars. And it's like so many of the affluent people like overlook their privilege mm-hmm. and their ancestral history and like how much they benefit from colonialism. They still have darker skinned people working on their plantations and working on their farms and doing their housework and doing all these things or driving taxis. And, and I just like, you know, it's like so funny to like see people who think that they're above like oh we don't we're not racist we're not you know it's like oh but you're oh but you oh I get it okay I just I just step back I just shut up so I came back to the states and I started making this piece and I was thinking like what am I going to title this show what am I going to title this work I watch a lot of TV when I'm working Mm mm-hmm I binge series. I'll complete a series. 
when I was working on the show for Wesleyan University, I would watch the whole six seasons of The Wire mm-hmm. in like a week and a half, two weeks. In the studio while you're working? In the studio while I was working. Um, I just recently started Grey's Anatomy. That's going to take a long time. <laughs> it's a Ex- backlog. Yeah, especially not working in the studio. I'm not watching it as much, but... Um, I just I knew the scale that I wanted it to be at and I really had a desire to shift the 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 way the work performed. Mm-hmm. And so if the work the the sculptures in the exhibition at Wesleyan the ceramic sculptures that ex, that were in the show at Wesleyan they are more artifactual and object and I knew that I wanted the experience at Calicoon Fine Arts to be about a, a spatial one. Yeah traversing a landscape and I had remembered my time back at in 2017 I was a judge for the AXO program with the NAACP mm-hmm. awarding grants and awards to high school students to go to college that's and cool yeah that must have been fun. oh my god it was a fast weekend yeah. we saw all this art we saw all these performances we saw all these kids from all over the country yeah. coming to Baltimore or you know this just this year last year or this year was in texas Mm -hmm. and then i hope they invite me back next summer because i really want to go it's in july it's one weekend all these people from all professions from all over the all over the country get together with all these high school students hundreds probably a thousand high school kids performing dancing cooking science projects art projects i'm just like taken away yeah and it's all extracurricular through an NAACP branch in a community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I say that, but it's also quite diverse. It's not just black people, it's Asian people, it's some white people, like whoever is participating in the NAACP yeah. um, chapter. Uh, but I went to the Baltimore Museum of Art to visit a friend named Kyle Bauer who works there as a preparator. And he took me through the the museum and I got to see the Antioch mosaics and the Baltimore museum has a huge collection of Antioch mosaics. Yeah. They have them on the floors. They have them on the walls. They have them everywhere. It's like tons of them. And I was like, wow, these things are amazing. They tell stories of daily life thousands of years ago. Hmm. I'm in my studio. I'm like, well, if they're telling stories about millennia ago, can I make a work? that tells the story or kind of narrates or looks at today. And so the work is this, this push and pull of the real, the found, the embedded, the entrenched violence, despair, longing, memorialization, kind of all packaged in one. And a friend of mine, Jessica Barron wrote the essay for my show publication that we'll have. It's a foldable. The first show we had a nice foldable, and the essay was written by Hannah Klim, who's the curator at the St. Louis Art Museum. Mm-hmm. So beautiful, be able to work with her. And Jessica a, was a, was one of my. She was a director and um, is the director and founder of Fort Gondo Compound for the Arts. Mm-hmm. It's a small artist-run prog- program in St. Louis, and she um, she's since closed the space, and now she's the associate director of a. Uh, a larger like a kind of larger gallery company 
uh, called Barrett Barrera, but she wrote the essay and she said, you know, really Khalil is a conceptual artist. His primary media just happens to be clay because of his experience of his life in his life. Right. And I was just like, I was like, thank you so much, Jessica, because it really is a layered it's layered conceptions on life and love and loss. Um, what Black Eyes the show is, the show is. Yeah, it's funny because when you're talking about that capturing daily life, you know, it's funny that you like Ukiyo-e too because that's so much about at that yes. time. Yes, capturing the daily life of that time period. You know, I mean, obviously there's there's other elements, but it's really about you know day to day and the little figures. I know. <laughs> and the wind. The yeah. Wind and the, tree, yeah. the food. The moon. The sex. Yeah, the sex is. There's I mean, it was wild. They're wild. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I, and, and so I produced the work using a technique that I learned in college. The semester before going to study abroad in Hungary, I took a class called uh, Layered Narrative. Mm-hmm. I think that was the name of it. Carrie Essa was a teacher. She's the chair of the ceramics program at the Kansas City Art Institute. And the tile class was called Layered Narrative. I tell you, I didn't learn what Layered Narrative was until the end of the class. <laughs> and there was no room for that to be okay. Right. Like you had to do it during the class. But the way I, I don't, I learn through experience. I don't learn as you tell me I understand it. I learn, I learn and get gain knowledge through experience through application Mm -hmm. do i learn it yeah and so we we did press tiles hand press tiles so some people might be confused that the work looks like bricks no the work is a large tile Mm -hmm. and it has things embedded inside it yeah and you know my work ethic plus carrie's class Six, six, seven years ago, mm-hmm. uh, prepared me for this. Nice. I'd say. Well, uh, why don't you tell people all the information for how they can check out the show, the dates, place, uh, your, how they can see more of your work online, all that stuff. Hit them with the details. Well, Black Eyes opens September eighth at Calicoon Fine Arts at forty nine Delancey Street between Forsyth and Eldridge. Those are details. Yep. <laughs> Uh, you can see my website it's my first name KhalilIrving.com gallery's website has a slew of great photographs Google is great too I love Google Um, yeah I think that's about it you could you can um, are you on social media do you do oh yeah I use Instagram and it's you know my whole name Khalil Robert Irving K-H-L-I-L. And my Robert is regular. And then Irving with an I. It's really nice to like. I switched. My my Instagram used to be my first and my last name. Mm -hmm. But now I made it my whole name. Because it was just like easier and more clear. I think I might do it to Facebook too. It takes you to you. Yeah. And I might. I might even delete my Facebook. But I used to like get like a ton of like likes and stuff on Facebook and then I stopped for like several years mm-hmm. like I seriously don't really engage Facebook and now I'm starting to pick it back up and like people are like seeing my stuff again I was like oh 
if I could just like do it every once in a while, I'd be able to keep up. But I got rid of it. I couldn't take it. It was too much depressing news all the time. I couldn't handle it. That's why I unfollow folks. Or I mean, Instagram for me, it's like I can just see what people are up to and mm-hmm. I don't get the five paragraphs of, you know. You really need to be doing this in your life right. because this <laughs> exactly. is the effect that you're having on everyone on the planet. And it's just, I just don't understand. And I was just like, oh my God. Yeah. Not again. It's heavy. Please. Like we have enough to deal with. I don't want to <laughs> deal with my social media time. I mean, a friend of mine is lives in the Bahamas. A few of my friends are from Bahamas and mm-hmm. it's really sad what's happened there. Yeah. And I said, you know, just let me know if you need anything. And, I, and you know, people say that and she said, well, you know, the relief efforts, you know, support and share that we there needs to be relief support. Yeah. And one thing I had to ask was, do you know an organization that you trust? Because I know a lot of relief ain't relieving. It doesn't go to, yeah. So, you know, let me know what one can really do. And so if you look at my Instagram, I'm sharing stories and sharing information. Cool. Yeah. About what I'm doing, what other people are doing. I put call for entries. One of my friends said I should start a job listing. (laughs) (laughs) For artists, I need to start a job and <laughs> exhibition listing because I just post all. That's all. A lot of what I post. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Well, um, thank you, man. Good luck with the show. Thank I'm you. Sure it's going to do great. It looks amazing. And uh, thanks for it. taking out the time to tell your story. It's beautiful. It's been great to meet. Nice to chat. Thank you. Thank you.